I can't really hear you. Um, volume or connection? Connection. Hmm. This is so strange. You sound pristine to me. Um, Sad trombone sound. We've spent the last 10 minutes or so trying to get our Zoom call or our Slack call or whatever method of communication we were going to try to do to work so we could record this episode. Yeah, it's been, this is funny to me because like, what, three months ago, you and I were like making a TikTok to announce season two of what we thought was going to be season two of Dish City. And we were like, this is what you think being a food podcast host <laughs> looks like. And we had us like being rained on by like donuts and French fries and all these like very like colorful and beautiful foods that the bloggers and vloggers love. And you know what, friends? During the pandemic, being a food podcast host is like sweating underneath a blanket because that's where you can get the best audio quality and like having your internet crash on you multiple times and just like wondering what, <laughs> why it's come to this. Right. You're sitting under a blanket with a microphone. Like I'm sitting on the floor of my closet. We've like, we're not like rookies at making radio, but We've had to relearn entirely how to do our jobs. Like, we've had a lot less time to write and report. And like you said, we already had months of reporting done for our other season. But, you know, with the pandemic, there's a lot of changes that are happening across our region that are affecting restaurants and food businesses. So we thought, why not talk about those things? Why not talk about the changes that those people are making? Because as hard as it's been for us, the people that we interview and report on, it's been way harder for them. Like the kind of change that they're dealing with is the kind of change that you're going to be able to feel the effects of it for potentially generations. At least that's what people seem to be telling us. This is Dish City. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. On our show, we cover city change through DC's iconic foods. And normally when we're talking about change, we're talking about migration, gentrification, neighborhood change that you see over the course of years. And so we set aside our original season two and we started talking about the ways the pandemic is really severely impacting the food industry and our food systems right now. Experts are estimating that a huge number of restaurants will not be able to reopen after the coronavirus lockdowns are lifted, anywhere from like 20 to 30 percent. With those odds, how are restaurants playing their cards to make sure they can survive? On this episode, we'll hear from two founders of local food businesses about the choices they made during the most grueling months of their lives. Then we'll hear from two Washingtonians about how the pandemic has changed the way they personally think about serving drinks and food. So the first people we're going to hear from are the founders of Compass Coffee. They're a local coffee roasting company with 12 cafes in the D.C. area, and and many of their locations are downtown. So they were really reliant on, you know, the commuter workplace downtown coffee work culture. And that obviously shut down pretty quickly after the pandemic hit D.C. Yeah, the two founders, Michael Haft and Harrison Suarez, had to act pretty quickly. And at the start of it, they actually had to let go like 150 of their 180 employees. And the next step, 
was to entirely change their business model. They started making hand sanitizer and trying to sell that to make up for all of the lost business. And now online, you can buy something called the Prepper Pack, which is a five-pound bag of coffee and two bottles of hand sanitizer and some chocolate and vanilla syrup. It's wild to me how, you know, Prior to all of this, you'd go into a cafe, you'd get a coffee to go, or you'd stay for a little while. But now people are going to Compass Coffees and potentially like stopping at a Compass the way that you would stop at a Costco. Like you've got, you're not just going for, you know, a one one latte to go. You're going and getting a five pound bag of coffee and then like a bunch of other stuff that's on your list. So I guess we wanted to know what did it take for a Compass to shift a huge portion of their business to an entirely new product hand sanitizer. We, we couldn't source like a proper pump top bottle. Like pumps, pumps are like gold right now. Like there's literally nowhere that you can buy a pump top. So we, we have just regular squeeze bottles and, and little squeeze bottle caps. And we were like, okay, cool. So it'll kind of be like uh, vanilla syrup. You know, you'll squirt it on your hands and uh, you know, that's better than nothing. Can you explain a little bit more about like the pump top economy? Like what... Like, is there is it something related to the pandemic that makes this particular thing really hard to get right now? So th- this is kind of hearsay, but in in talking with all of the manufacturers of uh, caps and bottles, their their suppliers are generally in China. The people who are making the raw materials for the pumps, like the little spring inserts or the dip tubes or the threaded pieces that actually attach to the top of the bottle. So essentially there's a ripple effect where because things were shut down in China in December and January and into February, none of those products were being shipped to the United States. And now there's a shortage. The shortage goes away in a couple months once their factories reopen and sort of trade resumes. But for the time being, it's kind of like there's just this missing gap of time where no pumps were made. I mean, uh, we've been going on eBay. We've been trying to get into the black market of pumps, like trading pumps with people. Um, I, I think. Right, Who are you trading with? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to give away our sources, but we've been able to secure <laughs> 20,000 pumps. So we've got uh, coming out next week, we've got 20,000 16 ounce bottles with pumps. One of the key areas where we think that it's going to be particularly popular is actually in the coming weeks, hopefully as we all start to go back to work and and back into the office, that our sanitizer is going to be popular with landlords looking to keep their tenants safe. So we've actually already started fielding those calls and and prepping for, for, for that. So how did you get these contacts? I think we were just quick and willing to solve the problem. That's really one of the things that's been core to Compass Coffee for the past six years is find a way. And so when people started saying, hey, there's this shortage, hey, we need this, hey, we can't find it, we put our heads together and figured it out. So, I mean, Harrison and I are, are pretty uniquely suited for, for dealing with this kind of environment. Um, before starting Compass, we were infantry officers in the Marine Corps. And uh, we served together in Afghanistan. And as, as strange as it sounds, the, the chaos and uncertainty of deployment is, is very similar to the sort of chaos, uncertainty, you know, the, the volatile situation that we're in where, where every day is different. 
you know, things that you thought were one way have quickly changed. And um, we're, we're pretty adaptable in these types of situations. I wonder from like an emotional and like mental uh, perspective, how quickly or how you were able to make the transition from like, okay, we're a coffee company to we're a hand sanitizer company. Harrison and I have, have broken out some of our, our old Marine Corps training to have discussions with our leaders about how do you, how do you deal with uh, PTSD with people on your team? I mean, how do you deal with a, a sick coworker or a sick family member or a friend, um, you know, casualties on the battlefield? And um, how, how can you be resilient and help other people through a challenging time? In addition to selling something in really high demand right now, hand sanitizer, I think Compass was able to make this pivot because they already have a few different streams of income. They've got their cafes, they have online orders, deliveries, and they're even in grocery stores. So even though they lost most of their in-person cafe business, there were still different ways for them to make money. Right. And the things they make don't have a really short shelf life. But what happens if your restaurant is dine-in only and you do sell something that spoils quickly, like seafood? Jamie Leeds is the founder of Hank's Oyster Bar, among other restaurants. She's a self-taught chef who came to D.C. as a consultant shortly after 9-11, which was another period of uncertainty in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Once she moved to D.C., she fell in love with the district and saw it as a place where she could build on her own dream, a neighborhood oyster bar. So now she heads up her own restaurant group, which has six businesses, and most are Hank's Oyster Bar locations. When the pandemic hit, Jamie pivoted. But unlike some other businesses in D.C., her Hank's locations didn't immediately become grocery stores or start making masks. The first step Jamie took in her pivot was to shut things down. We crunched the numbers. We went through the, the spreadsheets, and, you know, I realized that I had just enough money to pay my my last payroll, which I wanted to make sure that that was going to be able to be done. And so in a matter of hours, I decided to uh, close the restaurants to lay off the employees, over 300 employees, so most of them could get a job on applying for unemployment with really no other plan in mind. We thought, oh, we're just going to, you know, this will be a couple of weeks and then we'll be back. Um, and obviously that has not been the case. What was that conversation like? It, it took its toll, the, uh, the processing of it um, definitely took its toll on me. And I, you know, really went into a funk and not knowing what to do and not knowing, you know, building this, this company up from, from scratch. So I was also in the middle of construction on the uh, restaurant that I own called Hank's Pasta Bar. I was in the middle of rebranding that and renovating it. We're putting on a roof deck garden and it was a huge multi-million dollar construction project um, that had to be stopped. Just the loss of a lot of um, future plans and you know, having to deal with the unknown of you know, what, where's my livelihood going to come from now and the livelihood of so many of us, it's a very scary time. One of the things that made it easier for you to be decisive during this time was that you are the sole owner and, you know, this is your company. 
But in some ways, I'm wondering if that makes the fallout from all of this really hard to deal with. How did you kind of internalize the responsibility? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. So on one hand, it's, it's really nice to be able to have the freedom to make your own decisions and pivot easily and not be restricted. On the other hand, I carry the burden. I love to provide. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love being in this business. I love to make people happy. I'm not able to do that anymore. And I don't know if I will be able to do that um, with, you know, how things are going to go. And I started reading, actually, a friend of mine um, sent me an article about the um, the supply chains and the seafood, the fishermen, how they're losing all their product and everything. And I was like, we got to do something. I have a very good relationship with my main oyster vendor, Warshaw Oyster Company. They actually started their company sitting at Hanks on the back of a napkin. So I called Brad, the owner of the company, and I said, you know, what could we do to help get some seafood going? You know, maybe I can make some sauces. We could pair some seafood. And he was like, yes, let's do it. And like in a day, we put this company together called Current Catch. And we sell these seafood boxes, fresh seafood, which he gets. And then I make sauces to go with them. We're in our third week now and we've been doing pretty well. It's a delivery system so you can order online. So you launched Current Catch three weeks ago. And if I'm correct, Hank's Oyster Bar also just reopened May 13th correct. Um, for contactless yep. delivery and pickup, right? So why reopen now the, the restaurant part of things? You know, the thinking behind it is that takeout and delivery is going to be the majority of the sales going forward for a while. So my thought was, you know, let's get started with the process because we didn't really do a lot of takeout and we didn't do delivery at all. So it's a learning curve for us. So I wanted to be able to kind of get a little jump start on it before we actually are able to open, open, um, so that we can fine tune the menus and figure out what's selling. And, you know, we've worked on safety protocol. We've worked on sanitation. We've got, got the restaurant cleaned out properly. And, and also people are, you know, needing to work. Um, so the first part was if you feel safe to come to work, yes. If you need to come to work, yes. So let's do it. How, what do you think will be sort of like the biggest uh, ramifications for DC's restaurant industry coming out of this? I think that I'm definitely looking at streamlining my uh, business model, streamlining um, operations. I think, you know, things like um, positions like middle management positions like directors of operations and beverage directors and, you know, things, those kinds of positions are going to be not as uh, needed as much or used as much, you know, for DC. I mean, we're already starting to see people closing and not reopening and it's, it's going to be, um, it's really sad. This, yeah. I, I'm wondering something and it's, it's, um, if this is just the nature of the restaurant industry where like business owners have to like come up with something so quickly, you know, and like go out into like do these like crazy pivots, like start a new company or make hand sanitizer, or, like yeah. do something like yeah. 
totally out of left field. I guess what I'm saying is that it's like, is there a way for restaurants to exist where they like don't have to do this? Like right where they can just like press pause and like people can like take a pay cut for a little bit or something. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And believe me, I wish that I could do that because that would be ideal. Unfortunately, people can't wait that long to make a living. This is going to be a while. Um, So, you know, drastic measures have to be taken. I mean, people in the restaurant business are very resilient. You know, they're used to working their asses off and in terrible conditions. And it's like, you know, masochistic kind of lifestyle. Um, So we're kind of culturally, I feel like we'll be able to get through this. But uh, going back to normal, I don't know that that will ever be that way. It sounds like Jamie is feeling this sort of emotional whiplash. Like there's real emotional cost to pivoting this fast and under these horrible circumstances. And then there's the financial cost. Before all of this, Jamie had a lot of things going for her. She was expanding her restaurant group. But with all of that success, there was really only enough money left over for one more round of payroll. It just goes to show how tough the restaurant business is. You kind of expect restaurant groups like hers to have a little bit more leeway, like a bit of a buffer, but it doesn't sound like there was much of a cushion. Yeah, and even though Jamie started a new company and opened up one of her Hank's locations, it seems like her current business model is just a test for how she's going to operate in the future. Maybe she'll have to close a location or employ fewer people. It's not really clear if these changes will pay off. So far, we've focused on business owners. But of course, for every big business pivot happening on the founder side, there are all these individual and personal effects that trickle down to employees who have been furloughed or laid off. And that's leading to pivots that are more personal. So we talked to a bartender who's thinking about leaving the industry for good. Plus, what kinds of food pivots are happening on a community level? We talked to one community leader who's had to change his mosque's entire approach to iftars during Ramadan. That's after the break. Dish City would not be possible without the support of our listeners. We're part of WAMU, and it's been a huge effort to move our show production home. If you want to keep us going during the pandemic and after, you can become a member at wamu.org donate or by clicking the link in the show notes. Thanks! As of late April, hundreds of thousands of people in the region have lost their hospitality jobs. Brooke Stonebanks is one of them. Brooke had made a career in the industry, working as a bartender and as a caterer, and she had big plans in 2020. She was going to start her own events planning business, but then there was this whole pandemic thing that slowed that plan down. Now she finds herself in the tough position of considering what type of restaurant job she would go back to, if she wants to, and if she even can. I was actually working on potentially starting my own event and catering company and a, uh, a bar, cons- like a bar and restaurant consulting company. And um, I was partnering with a friend to do this and ho- hoping to launch it, like kind of go full forward, like in the fall and then uh, launch it next year. But whatever happens with unemployment or uh, 
with all the COVID and uh, I mean, I'm trying to still save up to hopefully learn, but right now, since I have to like pay for rent and focus on my son, I can't really even, you know, think about even fathom paying for like a school or a class or trying to try to get a degree, a business degree or something. Yeah, tell tell us more about the work you were doing before. It sounds kind of like you had had a lot of irons in the fire. I was bartending over at 18th Street Lounge, which is great. But I was also bartending at Crown and Crow, which is uh, owned by Brian Harrison. I had retired from bartending for a year before the Crown and Crow had opened, and um, I came back because I just missed. It. I'm a big people people person. Having a kid when I was behind the bar, that was my social life, basically. Like, it was like going out and hanging out with my friends. It's also, it's nice, too, because you kind of, when you're, when people open up to you, it's kind of you, uh, it's self-help, too, for yourself to kind of think and evaluate your life. So now it's sort of that, uh, that's all taken away, you know? So you're saying because it was such a popular and kind of bustling place to work that you felt no worries about starting your own business and like you felt like you could do oh, this yeah. for a long time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I had um I had spent one year one year outside of the industry and I uh I came back to it because it definitely it was, it was something that I, I, oh, what's the term? I like kind of put, put my, put my money in. Like when you, when you do poker, I put all my cards in. Like I had no doubt that I would be fine and I would be happy. And uh, it, it was definitely, I, I, I wasn't worried at all. And now who knows? I mean, I, I don't even know, like, what's most confusing is I don't even know where to go to next, you know? What do you mean? Like, what kind of job or industry or kind of, I just don't even know what I would enjoy as much, I guess. That's the term. Like, what I, I would uh, have as much passion and happiness right now, right now or just in general. You know, you you put this question out to the district industry Facebook group, and you're like, "Look, I gotta change something. I need to figure out what else to go into next. What's my next move?" And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk us through what other people have suggested. I think like the most, uh, like the quickest option, people were saying like, you know, Uber Eats or being a driver, which I don't have a car, bleh. but um, yeah, Uber Eats and. Uh, coding or IT, what I kind of they set my mind to is I think I might, I'm considering an interior design. What kind of timeline are you thinking about right now? I mean, do you feel like you have a deadline personally for figuring out something? If I do start doing the delivery options, then maybe I'll look into some classes by wintertime, I guess. Um, it's kind of, I'm, I'm literally living day by day right now. It's like, I'm trying to, uh, I, it's, it, things, you know, once, when you start thinking of the future, your anxiety gets so bad. And like I said before, even when, you know, I would love to get back into the restaurant bar in, industry, but, um, it's not going to be the same for a long time. 
I, I wonder too how hard it is to be kind of like thinking about leaving a field that you feel mm. so passionately about. Oh, that just, it breaks my heart. Um, that question alone just kind of made me tear up a little bit. Uh, it, it's it's going to hurt. I'm just going to hopefully try to stay as positive as I can. I mean, you have to always prepare for the worst, but I'm just going to really hope that it wouldn't come permanently to that place. Brooke's not just mourning the loss of a job. Her social life was wrapped up in the industry too. So for Brooke and other workers like her, it's really a double whammy. But unlike business owners, she can't just change her job to make sure that she can stay in the industry that she loves. So for her, pivoting now actually means figuring out the best way to leave the industry. Right. Like, I think I, I identify with what she's saying. Like, one of the ways I connect with people is over food and drinks out. But that's been entirely lost since we've been stuck at home. The closest I get is online interactions, and all of that happens through a screen. That being said, I can't imagine what it's like to have your income cut off, but to also end up losing your social life as a side effect of that. I think we're all grieving this loss in different ways. We're missing the places where we usually gather. One thing I've been thinking about is how the pandemic has overlapped with Ramadan. For Muslims fasting, getting together to eat for iftar after sunset is a big part of the holy month. But now, it's a lot less communal. We talked to Saif Rahman, who's the director of public and government affairs at Dar al-Hijra, a mosque in Falls Church, Virginia. For Ramadan this year, they were expecting to continue their annual programs of feeding and providing prayer services for up to 800 people. That all changed when the pandemic shut down public gatherings weeks before Ramadan began. Historically and typically, we would have uh, the community gather at the mosque for the breaking of fast, uh, which is the iftar, uh, and it happens at sunset. And we would essentially make, on average, anywhere between 600 to 700 meals nightly, uh, where people are gathering to break fast together as a community. Uh, so we've had to make a huge pivot, obviously, because you can't have that many people gathering at the mosque. We've decided that we wanted to be available for our community and make things easy for those that don't have access to food by just opening up a daily iftar drive through and this is not just for our community, this is for the larger community. We're distributing now, I think we're up to 730 meals every night. So the menu changes daily. Recently, we had a, a, a dish that comes out of the Levant called Musakhan, which is grilled chicken uh, over a bed of onions and pine nuts and sumak uh, over a piece of bread that has olive oil on it, for example. And there is no necess not a necessarily a quote-unquote Muslim menu. It's The food is eclectic. It comes from all around the world. And we try to make sure that we are uh, accommodating all types of backgrounds and dishes. When you all decided, okay, we're going to have to change how we handle our programs for Ramadan this year, uh, did people kind of understand the position everyone was in? Were people disappointed? So, so there was pushback uh, because, you know, Ramadan is considered the most sacred month in the Islamic calendar, particularly in terms of prayers and congregating. If you were looking at the Christian tradition, for example, you're telling people that 
uh, we're not coming together for Christmas this year because we just can't. Uh, or in our American tradition, uh, you know, we say Thanksgiving dinner is off now. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really difficult in the sense that uh, the end of Ramadan, if we're not able to figure out a way uh, to have people, you know, safely congregate, uh, listen to a sermon, uh, then, I, then I see that as affecting people a lot. My, my daughter is already asking me, my, I, have a, I have a five-year-old daughter, uh, is already asking me, Baba, is, is, are we going to have Eid this year? Uh, and we're trying to figure out how to safely do that. I'm wondering how uh, the pandemic has changed your view or relationship with your with your community during Ramadan. Our community is probably one of the more diverse ones, and that's what's made it so difficult. Uh, our community spans literally the fresh off the boat to second, third generation American Muslims. And then it also spans socioeconomic uh, statuses from people who are in very difficult financial situations to quite successful uh, doctors and business owners that are doing pretty well. So we've had to figure out how we can continue to service all of those segments of the community. And that's what's made it so difficult for us, because when you do it physically at the mosque, you could make speakers available to essentially be able to handle the different languages, the different cultures, the different backgrounds. But when you do it online, uh, we've had to try to navigate between how do we make sure that the programming is relevant and how do we still reach those people who maybe don't have internet access or maybe don't have the laptops or the phones or the uh, you know, network service to be able to get online and, and see the programming. So that's been the real challenge for us uh, in terms of trying to figure out how we service our community and how we stay connected together. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about how food is more than just a physical thing for you during this month and what role these meals have in terms of spiritual community life. During the rest of the year, you know, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you know, I play tennis and I bike, you know, okay, you take a drink and you're good. But during Ramadan, you realize that that blessing isn't there. And that's where food at the end of the day starts to take that meaning because now you are thankful for the blessings that you never realized you always had. To juxtapose that with what's happening with the COVID issue, we are in a situation where, you know, suddenly our life can be upended. Things that we took for granted, uh, you know, going to school, uh, meeting our parents and grandparents and family gatherings, our world and the bounties that we live in, uh, we sometimes take for granted. And I think it's a wake up call for us uh, what has happened with this pandemic. I love what Saif is saying. The lessons of Ramadan don't just apply to Muslims who observe this month of fasting. They can pretty easily be applied to anyone living through this pandemic right now. There are a lot of silver linings and lessons to be learned from all the ways restaurants, people, and food providers have pivoted during this pandemic. Some might be more obvious, trying to pivot to takeout and offering new delivery options. And others might be less so, like figuring out how to provide spiritual and physical nourishment for hundreds of Muslims from different backgrounds. Our attempts to adjust during this pandemic, how much of it is scrambling for survival and how much of it is sound business strategy? We might not know the payoffs for months or even years. If you get there before us, let us know. We'll be listening. Our 
Our next episode is going to take us a little longer to report, so we'll be back in your feed in three weeks. We miss you already. Dish City is produced by me, Patrick Fort. And me, Ruth Tam. Our associate producer is Julia Karen, and our editor is Ponzi Rutch. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor, and Andy McDaniel oversees all the content we make here. Catch us online on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Dish City, and our email is dishcity at wamu.org. If you love Dish City, tell a friend and review us in your podcast app. It'll help listeners like you find our show. Thanks for listening. Bye.